So today I'm joined by two guests out of, uh, out of the United States, out of uh, Las Vegas. Uh, on the line, I have Aaron Arp and Travis Lishock from Progressive Force Concepts or PFC in Las Vegas. Gents, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. I appreciate you having us. Thanks for having us. No dramas. So before I talk too much about PFC, um, I'm pretty keen to, to give our listeners a quick overview of your background. Um, so Aaron, I'll start with you. I know that your background includes a combination of um, uh, active duty military, as well as uh, working in that corporate space with you know, high net worth families and, and executive protection and, and management in that, that space. Can you give us a bit of a soldier's five on your history about uh, you know, who you serve with, any of the tours of duty that you might've done and, and sort of any notable CP or EP projects you may have worked with uh, without divulging anything too confidential? Sure. Uh, started off, I uh, joined the, uh, the army. I was a military police officer my, uh, my first two years were spent uh, essentially in a ceremonial unit uh, stationed in uh, stationed in Washington DC. After that, I uh, was stationed over in Germany uh, with a uh, what's called a core military police company. So we did community law enforcement, but we also supported First Armor Division with their field mission. And once the uh, once the Dayton Peace Accord came out, uh, First Armor Division deployed to implement the Dayton Peace Accord in Bosnia Herzegovina. And the 18th MP Brigade, the entire 18th MP Brigade, uh, deployed in support of that. So we were really with the first major U.S. ground forces that went into Bosnia. I uh, got out of the Army after that, went home to Austin, Texas, and just got uh, with no intentions of getting into the uh, executive protection industry. Kind of fell backwards into it. Uh, That was uh, about 20 years ago. So worked there, uh, worked there for a detail in Austin for about 10 years, did a number of things there, uh, high net worth family, uh, tech corporation, did a number of things there, traveled, uh, really got my, my feet wet in the industry, um, was the team medic among other things. Uh, they don't have the certification anymore, but I was a EMT intermediate oh, wow. and really handled a lot of our, our medical, uh, medical support. Uh, for the executive protection team, uh, resigned from that detail to take a position for a detail based out of Honolulu, Hawaii, yep. and uh, lived there in Honolulu for about five years. Uh, ended up running that detail, came out here to Las Vegas, uh, got hooked up with the uh, PFC, yep. and currently I'm the special operations manager. Which, among other things, uh, I do a lot of things for PFC. I'm one of the instructors for our our, our PSOC course. Uh, but my main day-to-day job is I handle a lot of our international security operations. Okay, fantastic. So, just uh, in regards to your, the military policing that you that you did, the uh, the military police over in the states, do they specialize in the EP or the CP space as well? I wouldn't say specialize in it, and it's been a good twenty years since I've been in the military police, so um, I can't really speak of what they're currently doing. But uh, during my tenure, they were mainly community law enforcement. We did do, um, we supported when we would go to the field, a lot of our work would be uh, doing route security, uh, base security, things like that. Uh, PSD, uh, what the military refers to as PSD would, uh, would fall to MPs, but usually that was, uh, usually that was specialized either military police investigations or CID Mm -hmm. would uh, handle that moreover. So the, so yes and no, I guess that's kind of a long way to answer that question. Okay, quite broad. Yeah, cool. 
Um, so Travis, now I understand your background, you were with the Marine Corps and um, uh, you, you, did you leave the, the military to go and study or were you studying whilst you were at, at during the, the Marines? So I was actually a reservist in the Marine Corps military police at Camp Pendleton yep. while I was in university studying political science. So that was kind of how I got my start there. I don't quite have a, a decorated career like Aaron does. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you still serve. So that's, uh, that's, that's certainly uh, up there. Um, and so you, you studied uh, political science, you said? Right. Yeah. I studied political science and then really by the time I graduated, I, I really became dissatisfied with politics, but now I had the security background and I had a lot of friends that are working in the security industry. So once I graduated, I reached out to some, to one of my friends who was, he was actually managing an EP detail at that time. And I started working on their detail just with, um, just on the residential security team and then slowly getting more experience doing like local field operations and then by the time I left, I was basically leading our protective intelligence program. So doing travel risk research, um, like due diligence investigations and threat assessment investigations for persons of interest and that kind of thing. So that's where I was at when I left that detail. Um, and I was there for about three years. Yeah. And then, oh, go ahead. No, you're right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's great, yeah. Oh, and then after that, once I left, I went and worked for like a, investigative research company doing mostly threat assessment investigations and due diligence investigations asset investigations and getting getting my feet wet there and getting much more experience and learning from experienced investigators and after being there for a while i got a great opportunity to go work for ontic technologies and that's who i'm with right now i'm a full-time employee with ontic and i'm here embedded with pfc just implementing our threat monitoring technology and then also supporting uh, GSOC operations here. Yeah, awesome. Actually, I'm really interested to hear a little bit about that and, I, and I'm gonna come back to that. Um, there's a whole conversation I wanna have around the, uh, the, protect, uh, the protective intelligence um, space that you operate in, um, but, mm -hmm. but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll circle back around to that. Okay. <clears throat> Um, so on this show, we, we obviously cover a broad range of, you know, safety and security aspects, including, you know, travel security, risk management, mitigation, executive protection, and so forth, so forth. Um, I'm keen to touch on a few of those aspects, but I, I want to hit on PFC first. Um, Aaron, can you give us a, a heads up of, you know, what is or who are PFC and where they're located, what you guys do? Um, you know, I know, I've, you, you know, you've got several aspects, including operations, which you were just talking about. Uh, but you also cover off on training and equipment sales. So can you tell us a little bit more about PFC? Yeah, absolutely. PFC is, it's actually PFC group of companies and, and underneath that title, we have many different divisions. Uh, PFC, probably the heart and soul of PFC is PFC training. Mm -hmm. And underneath that, we, we actually do a lot of training. The, the biggest client we probably have is the military, the US military. Yep. Uh, we do a lot of training for for various units throughout the country. Um, probably a close second to that would be our security training that we do uh, a lot of training for a, a lot of executive protection teams and security teams throughout the country. Uh, we have uh, a lot of our teams that we touch. We actually touch them through training and operational support. So that kind of brings me from uh, PFC training over to PFC safeguards. Mm. 
which is where I spend the vast majority of my time. Uh, I do instruct for PFC training if uh, we have something that's just executive protection. Although I, I was in the military, it's not really my lane. I've been out for 20 years and the stuff they're doing now is mainly, uh, a lot of our instructors are uh, out of former special operations guys and, and that's a lot of who we spend our time uh, touching these days as far as the, the training component in the military. Uh, but I will go over, I am one of the instructors for PSOC, which is our Protective Security Operations Certification. Uh, we do a lot of, a lot of training with, uh, with a lot of executive protection teams all over the, all over the country. Sure. Um, anything that, that's executive protection oriented, I'll probably, I'll probably be involved with it to some extent as an instructor. Um, but going back to uh, PFC Safeguards, PFC Safeguards is our operational division. So we support a lot of clients. We actually have a global footprint that we support clients uh, operationally. And that can be anything from doing threat assessments and POI monitoring, which Travis is helping us out with, uh, supporting executive protection teams, either via drivers or local assets. Uh, we do residential security, pretty much a broad spectrum of things that uh, we can get involved with and that we have either ongoing operations with or uh, or we do support as needed. Sure. Um, so that would be PFC safeguards. Then we have uh, one of our more interesting uh, divisions is, uh, is SkyPoint Concierge. So uh -huh. we actually have uh, a lot of clients that for whatever reason are a little bit hesitant about the, uh, the security title or having anything done for them that is security related as far as in name. Hmm. So what SkyPoint Concierge does is we support clients, um, basically the same services, but there's no security title to it. So uh, basically if, if, anyone, if anyone has that, for whatever reason, they need the support, but they can't, they can't uh, the, the security title is not palatable to them then uh, we can handle all of those services through SkyPoint uh, Concierge. Uh, lastly, we have, uh, well not lastly, we have a PFC CrossFit, which is a big, uh, big operation here in Las Vegas. Uh, we have uh, a couple hundred CrossFit members. We run classes all day long. And then we also have a PFC Loadout, which is kind of interesting. That's where, uh, where we, we sell items that our training cadre have tested. So that's kind of the interesting thing in our Loadout. There's nothing on there that has not been used or is not currently used by our instructor cadre. So that's kind of the 35,000 foot view of a PFC group of companies. Yeah, well, I mean, it's quite a broad, broad range of services. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, we, uh, we got a lot going on. Yeah, absolutely. It keeps you busy. Uh, look, I, I actually, um, I like that SkyPoint concierge um, uh, concept. I think that's, that's fantastic. Actually, I just wrote that down to make a quick note of it. Uh, and I and I guess it's come about exactly what you were saying is that it it removes that I guess inverted commas scary title from the whole security space and uh, brings it back down to that service orientated um, delivery I guess um, because at the end of the day let, let's face it a lot of what we do as EP operatives or as within that EP CP space is just providing a level of service and getting people from point A to point B we just do it in a safe manner. We stick this security title on it and it's just logistics. That's it. I would actually, uh, I agree with you hundred percent. I would say a good 90, 
90 plus percent of what we do, especially in a permissive environment like the U.S. or, or Western Europe, uh, that's uh, almost almost always going to be logistically based. You know, the um, the service piece of it, and, and I'm sure we're going to get into this a little bit more in depth, but the service piece of it is really what sets apart um, the bodyguards, which we kind of consider a, a bad word, mm. sets apart the bodyguards from the, the, the security professionals in the sense that, you know, you can, you can provide somebody with a safe environment and they could be as safe as, 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 as physically possible. But if you're not doing it in a way that, that brings them uh, in a way that, that makes them comfortable, then you're not doing it correctly. So it is, it is very much about that service piece and making sure that, uh, that they're comfortable and they're, they're, you're not creating anxiety for them by, by providing that safe environment and they, they feel comfortable with you. And a lot of that is just due to the fact this is a service industry. Yeah. Very much so, especially in the, the civilian private space. It is absolutely a service industry. So. 100%, 100%. And this, is, this actually leads me into the conversation I was going to have um, about hard skills versus soft skills. And I guess for those listeners out there who are a little unsure about what we're talking about with hard skills, soft skills, you've got your hard skills, which, you know, you start looking at, you know, your, your drills, your reaction to attack, your physical movements, um, your driving, your shooting, pedestrian drills, and so forth, so forth, your medical um, I guess the soft skills are more about the advances, the liaison, the etiquette, the intelligence and so forth. Now, I know you guys have got those amazing facilities out there in Vegas where you can do a lot of the, you know, those hard, hard drills or the solid training with the hard skills. Um, you know, from a, I guess, a soft skills point of view, is that something that you guys emphasize within your training as well? Absolutely. Especially our, our PSOC course is mainly about the soft skills because the hard skills are one of those things. You know, I'll be honest. I, the hard skills are fun. When, when you're, oh, when yeah, you're looking yeah. at your training time and your training dollars, the hard skills are what every, everybody wants to do. Everybody wants to shoot and we want to fight. We want to do all this cool stuff. And it's great. You know, and the, the fact of the matter is that if the day ever comes that you need those skills, they better be right there, ready to go and they better be sharp. But that being said, your, your average day, especially again in a permissive environment like the like the US uh, North America Western Europe you're you're thankfully we're not using those skills that often you know normally it's mainly about keeping your principal on task and on schedule and doing it in a way that that they uh, that, that, that makes them comfortable and the soft skills are everything and when you when you when you really talk about that corporate environment where you're dealing with with corporate employees having hard skills is all great and and fine and you need them but really your ability to communicate and honestly your ability to communicate in writing uh, is is very important and your ability to talk to people and put them at ease and not feel not make them feel like you're an overbearing presence and really uh, get people to cooperate with you because they want to cooperate with you versus trying to you know be some sort of scary person that's trying to force their cooperation it's not going to work very well for you so in our training components we actually spend a lot of time emphasizing the soft skills and really giving students uh, the chance to develop those soft skills because as you as you're well aware especially when we're talking about that corporate environment your soft skills are what's going to get you 
get you what you need. Uh, your day-to-day hard skills, they're fun. They're great. I love it. Love doing it, but they're not going to, they're not going to get you where they're not that those skills aren't going to get you the cooperation you need to get through your day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, to, well, let's talk about the, the, the hard skills. You're absolutely right. They are the, they are the fun, the fun things. Um, what, what sort of stuff out, out the um, training facilities you've got out there that you do in relation to all those, those hard skills? So uh, just going off our PSOC, we, we actually have a range uh, kind of a little bit south of Las Vegas. It's our own range. We own it. Um, it's a very, uh, very versatile place that we can do a lot of different training on our, uh, on our protective pistol skills. So part of our, our, our PSOC course, which is a week-long course, it's actually two different components. Day one through four is what we call protective agent development. So that's what we're talking about. We do a little bit of hard skills in there on one of the mornings. We're mainly just giving uh, the students exposure to uh, some disengagement techniques uh, in the case that you have that, you know, for whatever reason, you've got to disengage from somebody that's, that's either going hands-on your principal or, or whatever the case may be. So that's day one through four, protective agent development. And then on day five is all day out at the range, which that is uh, protective pistol skills or PPS. And mainly that is we have a lot of students that come through PPS. Uh, to be perfectly honest, we actually have quite a few students who come through our PPS course who do not qualify um, at the end of the day, uh, especially on their first time. And it's not necessarily that, that what we're asking them to do is is terribly difficult. It's just so incredibly new to most people that have been shooting in this environment, uh, you know, training to shoot in this environment, because we do a lot of work. The whole course is based around one, uh, carrying concealed. So uh, a lot of people have been in this line of work, even in law enforcement, and they carry a concealed weapon every single day. However, they don't they don't train on presenting that weapon out of concealment. Mm. And it's a, it's a skill that has to be developed because if you, like any other hard skill that we train for, if you think that you can just carry a weapon concealed and if the moment arises, you're going to be able to get that weapon out, presented and on target efficiently without ever having trained it, um, I, don't, I don't think that's going to work out so well uh, without that, that training piece. So. The whole day on PPS is spent uh, first coming out of concealment, learning how to do it efficiently, uh, doing it safely. The rest of the day is really spent on that third-party defense. So not just necessarily uh, shooting in that square range mentality where, where everything is downrange. It's really about, about shooting with that principle there, that protectee, and getting, getting between, between the threat and the principle safely and without doing anything dangerous for your principal. So the, the rest of the day for those hard skills is spent, again, really focusing on that third-party defense. And so that's where we get a lot of people that come through our course that, that don't necessarily pass our qualification the first time because while they may be great at shooting and they may be great at the shooting fundamentals, once you start having to apply those fundamentals while you're moving, while you're coming out of concealment, while you're protecting your, your client, uh, and you're having to do it under the pressure of uh, watchful PFC instructors, uh, sometimes a lot of people find that uh, 
so different that it, they don't necessarily grasp it the first time. But usually second or third time, uh, people get through it. It's just applying all those new skills in, in, a, in an environment that they're not used to. But at the end of the day, if you ever did have to use deadly force uh, while protecting your principal, it's probably not going to be in an open field mm. where your attacker is coming from this known this known location or this known direction and you're going to have all this time to deal with it. It's, it's going to be in a, it's going to be in a chaotic environment. There's going to be other people around that you're responsible for any, any rounds that leave your weapon, you're responsible for what they hit. Mm -hmm. So learning how to manage that in the training environment and being exposed to it in training is essential to, to being able to manage it in the, in the real world. So all of our hard skills are really based on preparing people as best we can for having that mentality you know, outside of the range. Yeah, fantastic. And you're right. Chaotic is a great word for it. I mean, you're not going to be, you're not going to be prepared. Well, you can be as prepared as you, as your best can be, but you're not going to know exactly where that, that, that attack is going to come from. You're not going to know exactly what time it's going to occur. So you're absolutely right. And that, that old adage of train how you fight, I guess you guys are, are really putting that concept in there. That's it. Absolutely. And we see uh, a lot of folks that, not to pick on law enforcement, but we what we see a lot of times is, you know, you have a, a police officer who is, you know, they work patrol, and that whole time they're working patrol, they uh, they're carrying in an open carry, which is what you would expect, and then uh, they get promoted and they get told, okay, Monday show up in a suit and tie, and now you're going to be carrying a concealed weapon, and uh, and they they do that. But then when they go to qualify, when they have to qualify on their duty weapon, they, they don't show up with their weapon in concealment. They dig out their, their Sam Brown belt out of the closet, dust it off, and they wear that uh, to their qualification for whatever reason. So we're, uh, we're big proponents. Uh, I, I, I can't even remember the last time I drew out of open concealment or out of open carry rather because I don't since – since I, the last time I carried open for work was when I was a military police officer in the Army. Since then, the last 20 years, I've been carrying concealed. So anytime I qualify, anytime I go to the range, even on my own, it's, uh, I'm always training out of concealment. Yeah, well, it makes sense, for sure. Um, now, in relation to the operations that you guys uh, provide or, or the support that you provide for your clients, um, I know that we've been fortunate enough to be able to support you guys over here. Um, is there specific locations around the world that you, you generally head to, like that you have operations running? We, we have a lot of operations running in South America. I would say uh, on our international front, that's probably where we have the most operations going. We are seeing quite an uptick in our operations in India. Hmm. And uh, we have supported uh, clients in Africa. Um, that one is a little bit, not as often, uh, although we do probably run a handful of operations there per year, uh, but mostly we're seeing South America, Central America, and uh, lately a pretty dramatic increase in, uh, in India. Yeah, sure. And do you guys generally uh, support it with one of your element, you know, one of your team members come over and then you sort of just have uh, locals doing the, the logistics side of it? We have partners, uh, partner companies in all of those, uh, those locations that that we've worked with and we trust and those are who handle our, our operations there. 
Yeah, fantastic. Good stuff. Um, Travis, I just want to bring you into the conversation here, mate. And I want to get a little bit off track somewhat uh, and talk briefly about, um, I guess, a couple of items that are close to you. One is the OnTick um, technologies that you're a part of. And the second one is um, EP Nexus. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess first up, do you want to just give us a heads up on what OnTick is and, and, and tell us a bit about that? Sure. So I just joined OnTick over the past year. And basically what they have is they developed a software platform to support corporate threat investigations. So that might be, you know, executive protection, corporate security, loss prevention, or even uh, like university threat assessment teams. So we've noticed, well, I say we, and you know, many others in our industry have noticed that, that when it comes to monitoring and assessing threatening people, we tend to use a lot of like cheap and inefficient workarounds. So lots of Excel spreadsheets and Google documents and uh, like using cheap tools like TweetDeck and if this, then that. So we've noticed that a lot of people use really inefficient tools. So what Ontic did was develop a platform for one, helping discover more information about POIs, but then also two, to to track them and monitor them and to look for potential threat indicators. And then also really just to, just to let investigators and corporate security managers and the like have one single source where they could have all the information on all of their threatening people in one place where it's easy to search and easy to map out connections between POIs and, and that sort of thing. So really just having one source where we can incorporate you know, many data sources, whether it's social media or public records or criminal records or anything like that in just one place, just make the investigator's job easier. Yeah, great. Now, with, with your uh, background in political science, uh, a lot of the time, well, in some, some, some places, I guess, uh, political science is sort of a, a, a precursor to a career in intelligence. So is, was, that, was that sort of a, a goal for you to go down that track at all or? Well, to be honest, my initial goal was to go work for like a Washington DC based think tank doing policy research, not necessarily anything uh, security or intelligence related. But, you know, later down the road, I, I did start to realize the trend that all, all or not all, but most of the investigators that I run into, they tend to be, uh, you know, former criminal justice or political science majors and that sort of thing. So. Once I left school, I didn't think political science was all that useful. But then as I got more, more experience doing investigations and you know, travel research and more security research, I did find that it actually was very helpful. Yeah, right. And you've managed to utilize that part of, I guess, that part of your education and incorporate that into the executive protection space within the uh, protective intelligence, intelligence field. So... Can you tell us a little bit how protective intelligence fits into executive protection? Sure. Well, there's many ways it fits in. So one thing that we already touched on was travel risk research. So just using open sources and, you know, proprietary data sources to make informed assessments about travel risk to our executives traveling, whether it's domestic or international, um, basically just assessing risk and developing a plan to mitigate and avoid those risks when executives are traveling. So that's one aspect during travel stuff. But then outside of that, another aspect is assessing threatened people and, and 
and developing a plan to mitigate those threats to our executives or uh, business events and that sort of thing. So really protective intelligence is just us being proactive in identifying and assessing and developing plans to, to mitigate and to prevent threats from, from impacting whatever assets it is that we're protecting. Yeah, perfect. And I think proactive is a fantastic word for that. I mean, in any EP detail or CP detail, um, as you both know and, and would um, attest to, um, the advanced phase or, or the intelligence phase, whatever you want to call it, is um, you know the planning. It's 90, 99% planning in, in what we do. And if you get the planning right, then um, the operations tend to go smooth. I agree 100%. Yeah, protective intelligence is really one of the few ways where we could be completely proactive and kind of go on the offensive and protect our executives, whether that's us monitoring uh, like activist groups that are targeting events that our executives are going to, or whether that's just monitoring persons of interest over time that are sending letters or, you know, trying to conduct surveillance or making uh, potential or trying to make approaches to our executives. And one, just studying everything that they're doing online because many of them keep public Facebook and Twitter and all these different accounts. But then two, also looking at public records to see, you know, what, indicators may be out there that would potentially elevate risk, whether that's them uh, going into bankruptcy or losing a house or getting divorced or being arrested. So that's another huge component too. Yeah, no, it's funny though. I mean, ironically, it can be a bit of a double-edged sword in that um, often the client will be like, well, you know, nothing happened. You know, you guys didn't do anything. And we were like, well, actually we've done quite a bit, you know, and if we've avoided that, you know, the, uh, the threat or we've, we've mitigated the risk, it's because of the planning that's gone into it. Uh, unfortunately, they mm -hmm. don't always see that, do they? Right. Yeah, that's one of the big challenges of security in general, trying to show the value of something not occurring, basically. And that's even something that we're addressing with Ontic, trying to make it easier for corporate investigators and, you know, global intelligence managers to show those security metrics on how much money they're saving by one you know, the investigators having to use less time for, uh, you know, less important um, tasks. And then two. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, oh, yes. So one, saving the investigators time by making it easier to do uh, less important tasks. And then two, giving important security metrics showing how much work is actually being done and how many POIs are being monitored and how much new information is coming into the system, which is helping them protect the executives. Yeah, so that's, that's actually installed or, or, or part of the on-tech technology that you guys utilize? Right, so analytics is, is one big part, just because we know how important security metrics are when those security managers and those program managers are going you know, to their board of directors or to, to their executive teams, and they have to show you know, hard data on on why certain expenses are, are reasonable. Uh, uh, that's fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty keen to actually have a look at all this, but um, uh, it, uh, if, you can, if you can provide that sort of evidence to, um, to the executives, to the clients and go, hey, look, this is, if you, as soon as you turn it into a monetary value, uh, they mm -hmm. understand it. So yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's great. Um, uh, Troy, so if I could add just one more thing on that, and, and I'm totally ripping somebody off here and I really, 
I really wish I could give this person credit. I just can't remember who was said it, but there was a recent article that came out that talked about how protective intelligence now, really when you look at kind of the classic security model on the, uh, uh, the concentric rings of security and how you have that inner, middle, and outer ring, yep. and each ring is, is ideally detecting the threat further and further out from the client, when you look at protective intelligence now, it's actually almost a fourth ring that goes out, you know, in uh, almost to infinity. Mm. So uh, incorporating it into an executive protection operation, if you keep it in that kind of mindset, that that protective intelligence provides that outer, outer ring, where hopefully we're detecting those threats long before they ever get to, uh, to where they can actually uh, are close to that inner ring where the, or whatever it is we're protecting is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great analogy. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all about mitigating risk or, you know, at, at least managing it at, at, at worst, I guess. And, and part of that is doing that risk assessment and bringing as much information into um, that, that picture as possible. And I guess uh, protective intelligence provides that. And, and one of the other things that we've done and Travis has kind of helped us here at PFC um, especially when you're dealing with uh, with the financial folks over at you know any corporation, uh, like like Travis mentioned, the security component. A lot of times, there's no tangible there's no tangible product at the end of the day. It's a, as we mentioned earlier, it's a service. And one of the things Travis helped us do here, which we found really valuable with some of our clients, especially when we're trying to quantify where we're going to spend resources, whatever those resources are, is uh, PFC kind of came up with, uh, and we're not the first ones to do this, we just came up with our own internal one, but we actually came up with, uh, with a numerical value based on the protective intelligence and the threat assessments for, you know, broken down by different categories and different things, we assign um, a numerical value to a particular item. And then through that, we can actually create essentially those metrics where certain resources would be justified for certain environments or certain events or certain locations. So we're like kind of one end of the spectrum might be we're just monitoring the area during the event because that's what the numbers kind of added up to. And the other side of the, the spectrum might be, you know, hardened vehicles and all these other things, but it's, it really, for people that don't understand security and, and don't understand how much work and effort goes into this or why we do things a certain way or why we wanna commit certain resources to certain locations, having that numerical model really helps people understand, especially people that deal with finances and they deal with numbers all day long, uh, really helps them understand how dangerous or, 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 or how permissive an environment may be and why we want to do certain things in certain areas. So um, again, there's probably lots of other companies out there providing that same thing, but, uh, but Travis really helped us and through the, through the protective intelligence helped us put that, that model to use. And we've, we've already seen a lot of clients that were hesitant um, on some things through that, that documentation or through that, that model, see why we want to commit those resources to certain areas. And all of a sudden they, they see it and it's, it's a little bit more understandable to them. 
That's a great concept. I mean, so essentially, if I understand it correctly, you, you, you do a threat assessment or you have some sort of a threat assessment or risk assessment. And then at the end of that your assessment, you have a scale for whatever numerical value, let's say one to 10, 10 being, okay, you need a full detail of 10 people, one being, okay, you need a, a soft skin vehicle and a driver. And, and then sort of there's a whole range in between. Is that kind of where we're at? That, that's exactly it. And, and every, every piece of that, that model is based on the threat assessment. And lots of times this is, this model is actually done before we even get on the ground there. So before our advance even starts, our, our on the ground advance starts, we've already, we've already assigned values to certain things based solely off the threat assessment and the protective intelligence piece. Yeah, fantastic. And that comes back to that proactive um, intelligence or proactive planning that you guys talked about just previously as well. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, now, Travis, I do want to touch on um, EP Nexus. Uh, I've, you know, I follow you guys or I follow EP Nexus um, on across social media and you've put out some really great content. Can you, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what EP Nexus is? Yeah, so for about the past two years, I started a blog just writing about protected security. And really, I just started writing about all the topics that I had thought were particularly interesting. So there are already some, uh, like some good security, security organizations putting out good content. But really, I think, I don't know, it wasn't really the content that I was looking for. I think being someone that's younger in the industry, you know, with about five years in you know, executive protection investigations, my interests and my outlook are a little different. So I was just trying to put out content that I found particularly interesting, you know, such as like I recently wrote an article about uh, like how to pass the CPP exam in six weeks or less. Mm -hmm. So it's really me just taking kind of uh, a less experienced perspective and, and just talking about stuff that I'm particularly interested, interested in. And I've been doing that for about two years now and just putting out content about once a month and then, you know, continually adding stuff on social media and just building an email list and, and really just using it to network and meet with more people. I think that's been the real advantage. Yeah. Fantastic. No, look, um, and for our listeners that are out there, uh, we'll leave all the details at the end of this, but it's, it's definitely worth jumping on and, and subscribing to is some really, really uh, great content that comes out of it. Um, there's one there you've had a, an interview with, uh, Ilya, uh, Yamansky. Um, mm -hmm. I've met Ilya before he's, uh, he's, he's consummate professional. He's a, he's a really great bloke. And that was a, a really interesting um, podcast that you guys did actually. Thank you. Yeah. Ilya is super interesting and he's working on more projects, specifically mentoring young professionals, which I think is hugely important. And once again, just, you know, creating a blog online and, and writing a bunch of content that I think is interesting. It ended up being helpful because it connected me with people like him and then, and then others such as I went, me and the other Ontic guys and gals, we went over to the ATAP annual conference, Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, their conference in Anaheim this week. And just by, you know, me creating content maybe once or twice a month, that kind of gives, gives me an excuse to go talk to men and women in our industry that have been doing it for 10 and 20 years. Mm. So it's just a huge advantage for, for networking. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, and like I said, for, for the listeners, this, there is really some great content on there. I mean, everything from travel intelligence hacks through to, um, you know, um, medical information and, and risk assessments and whatever else. So um, definitely worth having a look at. Thanks. 
now. So speaking of travel hacks, uh, moving forward, uh, and just before we wrap things up, you know, a lot of this show is about um, talking about travel safety security. Do you guys have any, uh, I guess, um, travel hacks or EP hacks um, that our listeners can take away and easily implement um, as they travel? I mean, obviously you guys do a fair bit of travel yourself. So is there anything you can pass on? Uh, yeah, I have a couple things. Uh, one of the areas is an area PFC is getting more involved in as far as our instructing. Um, it really, it's a, a, a technology piece. So a lot of times guys and girls are getting assigned to these EP teams, especially at the corporate the corporate level and they're given all this equipment, phones and laptops and iPads and all this great stuff and they're not really given a ton of a ton of information on how to use these things securely, especially when traveling outside of the US. Um, so one of the things that, uh, that we've been really trying to hammer home with our is to avoid those unsecured free Wi-Fi spots. Yeah. Um, Everybody knows, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of using them myself, but, uh, but if you're going to use those, especially outside of the U.S. or even in the U.S., just really get a VPN, a, a virtual private network. There's lots of them that are commercially available. Um, I just really can't say enough how dangerous, especially if you're dealing with the sensitive information that we tend to deal in, uh, sending that stuff over an open, unsecured Wi-Fi network that's not yours. Yeah. So uh, that would be my first thing I'd really want to want to talk about is just that. The other thing is, and this is kind of a, a newer newer piece that goes hand in hand with that, but uh, you're seeing these USB banks everywhere now where you can just plug your device in directly to a USB port, uh, presumably for power. But as, as most everybody knows, those USB ports were originally designed to transfer data, not power. Yep. And so anytime you take your device, whether it's your phone or your tablet, and you plug it directly into a USB port that's not yours, uh, you're, you're taking a chance there that they're downloading, that they're, they're doing more than just transferring power into your phone that could be transferring data. So Absolutely. there's USB data blockers. Uh, you can pick them up pretty much anywhere, and you can use those between that, uh, that unowned USB port and your device to power up. So another just handy thing to throw in your bag when you're traveling is a USB block and that way at least uh, if you do have to use a USB bank that that's not yours or a public USB bank you can at least uh, take another level to ensure that uh, that you're not giving anybody some information you would rather they not have totally that's a great tip and then lastly this was actually something uh, Travis and I were talking about last week and, and I hadn't thought about it I, I, I've been doing it for so long uh, I had not thought about it as uh, something that other people might not be aware of, but I actually have a, uh, a sanitized carry-on, and uh, especially working for a, a company like like PFC, it's not uncommon for me to throw a magazine or ammunition or a baton or a knife or something like that in my my day-to-day -day computer bag that I carry back and forth to work with me every day. So what I have, uh, and I've ha I've been doing this for years, I have a completely and totally separate backpack that I use whenever I fly. And whenever, I, uh, whenever I'm getting ready to get on a plane, I just transfer my laptop and my iPad, anything else I might have that I want to take on the trip, 
I transfer that out of my day-to-day -day, uh, computer bag into this completely safe uh, backpack that I know I don't have anything TSA or anybody else is going to be upset about if I go through security. So uh, that would be kind of a few things I would throw out there. Some great tips. I, I do like the uh, the sanitized carry on. I think that's a great tip, um, and probably one that wouldn't be all that well known, but certainly a really good one because it's the last thing you want to do is be caught at the airport uh, having to explain why you've got that additional round or that knife in your in your backpack that you totally forgot about. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and and in regards to the cyber stuff, look, I'm not a cyber expert, but really great tips. Uh, the VPN and, and the USB data blocker. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable the amount of information that can be gathered without us even knowing that it's gone. So really good tips. Yeah, and especially with that free Wi-Fi, if, if you look into it, um, here in the U.S. especially, I, I can't imagine it's that different where you're at, um, but uh, managing those free Wi-Fi spots or, or actually taking advantage of those, that's where kids learn to hack. That's mm -hmm. when kids start hacking, when they first, when they're teenagers and they first start experimenting with hacking, that's where they start. That's, it's so easy and so, um, so many people are vulnerable by using those things that children are out there hacking your, your, everything you're sending over those networks because it's so incredibly easy. In fact, one of the most, uh, one of the most common attacks is what's called a man in the middle attack. And I recently did this, uh, just this little experiment for class, I Googled man in the middle attack. And out of the, th the first three things that came up, the first two were actually how to conduct a man in the middle attack. And only one of the three that came up was how to protect yourself from it. Yeah. So that's how, how common this exploit is, uh, is used. It, it's, it's literally teenagers having fun stealing your data. That's crazy. And we become so complacent to it. I mean, everywhere, you, you tend to hear a lot about it these days, about the cyber and whatnot. But I guess because people can't see it, can't physically hold it, touch it, whatever else, uh, I guess you become quite complacent to it. And it's really, I guess, uh, outside of the security industry, it's not that prevalent. But people really need to be aware of it, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and not only, you, you bring up a great point that we can't see it, we can't touch it, so we don't necessarily feel vulnerable. But on that, on that same token, we're so reliant on it. I mean, how when was the last time you went a 24-hour period and didn't access something online? I mean, most people can't even remember an hour that they weren't sleeping, that they weren't doing something online. So it's become such a, such a huge part of our day-to-day -day lives and, and, frankly, such a huge part of how we communicate within the security industry that you kind of take it for granted and, and don't always – think about how uh, how those vulnerabilities could affect you absolutely uh all great tips travis you got any mate yeah i have just a couple about uh relating to travel research so one uh people might be familiar with twitter lists so you, you could google you know how to create a twitter list for uh, like news monitoring so twitter has a function where you can create a list of just uh specific people to follow and in pretty much every major city in the U.S. and even internationally, you can find, you know, a local, the local police department and the local EMS agency and the local, uh, you know, first responders. You can find all of their Twitter accounts and just create a list of, let's say you're going to the U.K., 
you create a list of all the local police departments, Twitters, and the EMS agencies, and maybe even like the local news agencies. And that's something that you could access on the desktop or even on your phone. So that's one, one quick tool that, I, that I've used when I've traveled internationally for just, being, for just having most, the most up-to-date news or like breaking up-to-date news or anything that relates to security and safety just right there in front of you, in, you know, on your Twitter app on your phone. That's great. That's one that I really like. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's a, um, relevant and location-specific to where you're going, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super helpful. Yep. And then, and then the, the last one, I'm probably, well, I know I'm guilty of this, so I imagine others are too, but in doing, you know, travel research about certain companies, I think a lot, or certain countries, I think a lot of people focus on, um, like, the, the specific travel website of their government. So, you know, if we're in the U.S., maybe we're just looking at the State Department's travel website. But actually, you know, Australia, the UK, Canada, all of them have really good, have really good and detailed websites about travel, about travel to specific countries all around the world. And oftentimes I've found where, you know, the State Department's website might be lacking information about maybe banned items or events going on in particular in a particular country. The Canadian website or the Australian equivalent of, of their travel security website have that information so i think it's pretty important just to kind of branch out and consume you know uh like a wider appetite of information fantastic no great tip great tip um guys uh before we go so it's probably going to be over by the time this gets published but uh being in las vegas you guys going to be around for the uh gsx aces conference um i don't think pfc i don't know that we participate in that but uh, I'm sure we have uh, guys that work for us that'll be attending. No worries, no worries. Well, we're actually heading over, so uh, be sure to pop in and say good day. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to catch up for a beer or something. For sure, for sure. Uh, now, before we go, how can uh, the listeners get in touch with uh, the team at PFC there, Aaron? Uh, PFCtraining.com or PFCsafeguards.com or PFCgoc for PFCgroupofcompanies.com. Uh, any of those will bring you to our website um, that can through the website, you can get in touch with us and for training needs or for support requests or basically just questions about what we have going on. That's the, probably the best way. Fantastic. And um, we'll put all those details up at the, um, with our show notes. Um, Travis, what about yourself, mate? If uh, listeners want to better educate themselves about, you know, anything from open source intelligence through to protective intelligence and EP nexus and whatnot, uh, how do I get in touch with you? Sure, if they want to reach out to me, they could just go to epnexus.com and find my email at the bottom of the page. Or they could even just direct message me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and I'll get back to them quickly. Fantastic. Guys, thanks again for taking time out to talk with us here at uh, Wheels Up Podcast, or at least talk to me. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you guys uh, next time we're in Vegas. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll get the chance to head over to um, the PFC Concepts um, uh, facilities if we've got time. Uh, For our listeners, make sure you go over to their website, uh, check them out. Um, Guys, uh, like I said, uh, some really solid team that you guys got over there. Some great training by a group of professionals uh, who who really have runs on the board. So thanks again for uh, joining us. Cheers. Thanks, Troy. All right. Cheers, guys.